All right, thank you, Ray. Two weeks ago, y'all, we started a new series. We studied and land ourselves in the book of Nahum. We started a series in Nahum, which is called an oracle. I say and refer to it as an oracle because that is the words used in the very beginning of the prophet when he gives us this message. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, an oracle concerning Nineveh. You know, oracle is a rather interesting word. I mean, I don't use it in everyday conversation. I don't walk up to someone in the school and say, let me give you an oracle. I mean, I don't tell them anything like that. I can't even remember using the word besides in the time of message. So because it's not maybe familiar with us in our everyday language, we take an opportunity to define and better understand what is meant by the word oracle. So you may remember in our first message with Nahum, we defined oracle as such. That is typically a divine revelation communicated through God's spokesperson, usually pronouncing blessing, instruction, or judgment. Now, in this particular case of Nahum, he is the one chosen to be God's spokesperson. He's a prophet, and the prophet now communicates God's divine message, a revelation given to him pertaining to the city of Nineveh and all of its inhabitants. What is the message that, that Nahum has been given to communicate to the city and its inhabitants? Was well, not a blessing, and it's not instruction, but rather he is going to communicate through these three chapters that we are dissecting, he's going to communicate that God is going to place upon them judgment and wrath and vengeance. In our first message, we noted how that gives us the indication of what's going to happen to the city of Nineveh. In chapter 1, verse 2, it told us the Lord is avenging and wrathful, indicating that that is something that's about to happen to the city. Is that the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. The adversary here, the enemy, is Nineveh and its inhabitants, its residents. Verse 3 also added, the Lord by no means clear the guilty. They will be guilty as charged for all the injustice they have placed upon Judah and the Israelites. Verse 6 also gave us a little perspective. It's rhetorical questions, but it gives us perspective of how wrath and judgment is about to come upon Nineveh when it, when it says or asks, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? The answer there is no one. Is that his wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him, indicating some things that shall be forthcoming to the Assyrians, Ninevites. So essentially, as we open ourselves up to the words of the prophet of Nahum, Nahum is basically prophesying what shall come upon Nineveh? The Lord is angry. That might be an understatement. He is angry with this great city. He has seen enough of their cruelty, their atrocities. He's had enough of their evil, wicked ways. But as we say that, we must pause and remember. Because this wasn't always the case with Nineveh. I mean, that's the current situation in which we find the book of Nahum. But we must remember as we have messages pertaining to Jonah back in the spring, that Jonah had come to Nineveh and he preached the message to them. Yeah, he was reluctant at first, but eventually, through the course of time, 
he actually obeyed the Lord, went to Nineveh, preached the message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. As he preached that message, the Ninevites listened. They heard it. They responded. They seemed to be to repent. It was a short, brief, powerful message in which the city of Nineveh, as we find in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, became sorrowful. It said they called for fast, put on sackcloth, all the signs of them having a repentant heart. So because that happened then, this turn of events that's placed upon Nineveh, God desired to put wrath upon them. He had Jonah to go preach to them. They had repented from their evil way. And because all that happened, I mean, Jonah wanted them to have wrath upon them. But because that happened, it pleased God to the point where he did not bring disaster upon them. In chapter 3, verse 10, said God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But that was then, and this is now. A new generation has come upon the scene in Nineveh. It's approximately 150 years later between Jonah and Nahum. That's at least a second, third, and maybe even a fourth generation that have passed in that time. And as all that has happened, now we find as we open Nahum that God is greatly angered. The Assyrians, again, the capital city of Assyria is Nineveh. They have returned to all their previous ways or maybe even worse. It's like a dog returning to his vomit. God has had enough. He sends the prophet Nahum to deliver his word. It's a story as we get into Nahum that sends us a message, a message that we would all should pay attention to which is why we study the book of Nahum. So what is the message? Why should we study it? What can we receive that would benefit us by going to Nahum? It is this, which is the theme, which is in your notes. That one generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next. One generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next generation. Now, that statement applies to each and every one of us, regardless of age, regardless of gender. It applies to everyone, especially really maybe then in our country. The United States of America, our country is immensely blessed. We were formed as a God-fearing nation, and we've had some incredible great revivals over the years in our country, and God has blessed us. But look where we are now. It's rather interesting that this message today falls upon the weekend of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I mean, the timing of this message is astounding to me because I, I can't time things that way. I mean, that's a God thing. So we have a message today talking about how one generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next, reflecting upon our own country and thinking, what has happened? I mean, you remember, if you were alive and well, that time of September 11, 2001, it's most likely you can recall or remember everything about that day. We took an opportunity earlier in our Sunday school class, when up the teenagers who were not alive at that time, 
to reflect back upon some of the video of that day. Now, likely a lot of us who were alive and well remember everything that happened. We don't have to look at the video, but the video does bring back for us vivid images. And maybe we can even remember exactly where we were and what we were thinking as we seen that plane fly into the World Trade Center and then seeing it collapse. And I heard later that nearly 3,000 people had perished that day. I mean, how did it make you feel? You know, for me, I was living in Clinton, Mississippi, and attending First Baptist Church of Clinton. It was a non-church day. And I remember the pastor calling the church together and saying, let's come together tonight and let's just have a special time of prayer. Prayer for the country. Prayer for those who died upon that day. Pray for the first responders who gave up their life to run in to help. Pray for the innocent men and women and children on the planes that flew in to the World Trade Center that didn't have any control of events. It was just a time of prayer. It affected everyone in this entire country. So much so that you may remember on the Sunday after the 9-11. Do you remember what happened in the churches on Sunday after 9-11? Many of them were full. Many people put God as priority, number one, and made him first. God was in first place again just after that happened. But that was then, and this is now. How many churches were full today? We study the book of Nahum because it points us to the truth of our theme that one generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next. Now we'll further apply that theme as we go further to the message today, but let us go to the text. We've opened our Bibles to Nahum chapter 1. A couple of weeks ago, we read the first six verses. Today, we're going to read the entirety of the first chapter. So stand with me today, if able to, so we can honor the reading of the word. And again, Nahum chapter 1 is 15 verses in the first chapter. Let's read them all. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkos. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up. The, all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Verse 6 again, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Now, verse 7, but the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. 
But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came out one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading of this word. And Lord, today we take an Old Testament minor prophet, Lord, and study his word to begin to understand it, but to apply it to our modern day. So Lord, we invite your spirit today to lead and to guide and to help us understand the text, but to better understand it, Lord, how it applies to where we live today. Let us heed then the message that's given to us today from you. Let's be thankful for it. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you're being seated in our previous message a few weeks ago, we refer to it once more because we established a couple of weeks ago, as we look into the first six verses, particularly verse 2, that God is both a jealous and avenging God. It says it clearly in verse 2. Now, he is jealous in the sense of warning his children, which is you and me. If we call ourselves Christians... We call ourselves believers, followers of Christ. That's who we are. We gather here today freely to follow him. So he is jealous in the sense that as we live our lives, if we do not put our worship, glory, and praise upon him and him alone. In that sense, he's jealous. Now, we stated it this way to better understand that. We said that since God made everything and owns everything, he is envious of absolutely no one. It is his. But since he is the only true God, he is then jealous over his glory, his name, and the worship and honor that are due to him alone. We just need to admit that we constantly, in our lives as we live them, we constantly honor and worship other things than God. But God should be the only one we worship. This is not new stuff. We know that. But we still continue to worship other things and false idols and false gods. Where God should be the only one we honor, glorify, and praise. But there's the question that's looming. Do we solely Entirely, exclusively, only worship, honor, glorify God? If we're honest, the answer is no. 
Because there's too many times we become guilty of worshiping or honoring or giving some glory to athletes or musicians or entertainers like on movies or TV. God deserves our worship. He is a jealous God, and when it comes to the honor, glory, and worship, he alone should receive it. And when we do otherwise, it provokes God's jealousy. Thereby, he becomes angry, as he is, in a sense, with the Ninevites, to the point where now he is just done with it. I mean, he's fed up with it. He's had enough. Because, in a sense, when we do those things, we begin to dishonor him. They and we, when we give someone else the worship that only God deserves, we dishonor him. And when this happens, his anger is provoked to wrath, to vengeance. Which brings us then back to the text. Because this great city we recognize, we know during the book of Jonah, they had chosen to repent. But now they repent no more. Yeah, this new generation or second or third or fourth is upon the scene. They have returned to evil, worshiping false gods having every form of wickedness. So because that is the case, doom shall soon be upon Nineveh. Vengeance is the Lord's, is at his disposal. He is in control, and wrath is now going to be placed upon the Ninevites. Nahum gives them that message. It's similar, if you will, to how Moses declared something very similar back in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He wrote, the Lord speaking, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. And that's precisely the case now we find ourselves opening the book of Nahum and studying what's happening with the Assyrians of the Ninevites. I mean, essentially it's time for the great city of Nineveh to pay for their injustice. If you notice, while we were reading those 15 verses twice, in verse 8 and 9, it said, He will, God will, make a complete end of the city of Nineveh. Now, I want you to understand what that means. That He will make a complete end. It was so up much of a complete end for Nineveh as God placed his wrath upon them that we're going to talk about in future weeks. It is such a complete end. Archaeologists could not find anything about Nineveh until 1845. And that's quite a long time between then and 1845. When God says he's going to do something, when he makes a complete end, he does do it. Wrath is about to be placed upon them because of their injustice. That's the message that Nahum has given the city, the people. But we pause for a moment here because we need to return to the text and we need to remember that while the oracle of Nahum declares the universal sovereignty of God, of his might, his power, 
He equally declares that God is patient, that God is loving, compassionate, and nurturing, for he loves us and is a great comfort and refuge for those who love and honor him. Look at verse 7 once more. Is that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. I mean, please observe that the God that Nahum introduces us to in the very beginning is a jealous and avenging God. He's ready to place doom, as we've already mentioned, upon Nineveh. He's ready to avenge his people, the, the Israelites, because of all the wickedness they've been placing upon them, he's ready to avenge his people. But Nahum also tells us that he is also a good God who cares for his people in verse 7. Now, I think it's important that Nahum inserts this truth at this juncture of his oracle. I mean, of the impending doom that he's pronouncing upon Nineveh. I think it's important he inserts this truth. I mean, think for a moment about all the people that you know that just hates God. I mean, they hate God because they feel like he's an evil, moral monster who totally controls and manipulates the lives of many different people, eliminating those who do not obey and who's those who will not honor him. Many people hate God. Now, that might be the first time you heard that, but let me tell you, many people hate God. Case in point, sometimes they'll take a text like we're looking at today and name and say, how could you possibly ever find God to be loving and nurturing when he's so determined to wipe out Nineveh? I mean, we learned it didn't even have any idea, couldn't find anything about Nineveh until 1845. So how could you say God is loving, compassionate, and nurturing when he's ready to wipe them off the face of the earth? Or they know nothing about Nineveh, never heard the name of Nahum, then maybe they have some knowledge or heard something about the scripture. So they say, well, I don't know anything about what you're talking about with Nahum, but they're quick to point out that how can you say that God is loving, God is caring, God is nurturing, compassionate, when he would take 40 days and 40 nights and let it rain for so long, have a flood to come up on the earth to wipe out all of mankind except for eight people. If he's so loving, if he's so compassionate, why did he not let somebody other than eight people from Noah's family survive? Or maybe they don't know that. Maybe they say, well, how could you say God is so loving if he gets so angry at Sodom and Gomorrah that he would completely destroy these cities? Or how could you say that God is so loving, God is so compassionate, God is so nurturing if he allows things like 9-11 if he allows things like the Holocaust or, or the horrible things pertaining to human trafficking, rape, and murder, and other things, how could you say then that God is nurturing, loving, and compassionate? When they look at these things and they say, I hate God because he allows these things and does nothing about them. Or if they don't say anything like that, sometimes they'll say this. How can you say that God is so loving, kind, nurturing, compassionate, that he would really, really send someone to hell? 
that place we talk about. We don't like to talk about it, but it exists where there's just it's, it's eternal torment forever. Anguish, gnashing of teeth. Would God really love someone if he would send someone really to hell? How could you say God is loving compassionate when he would send someone to hell? Well, the answer to that is God does not send anyone to hell. We do that all by ourselves. We make that choice. We make that decision. And Peter rightfully declared in chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 9 of his second official, he said, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient with us when we're not patient with him. But God is patiently waiting for all to not perish, but accept his son and repent. I mean, truly, if we think about it, why can we say that God, if God is such a moral, evil monster, lacking in love and compassion, then why would he send his only son to die for us? I mean, Jesus is literally God in flesh, incarnate, who came to take our sin so that we would not be condemned, but would be saved, as it tells in John 3, 16 and verse 17. That God desires for all people to be saved through his son. And he is patiently waiting for those, maybe people we know and love, who have not yet received Christ. He's patiently, patiently waiting. As we dishonor him and rebel against him, he's patiently waiting. Desiring for none to perish, but to repent and come to his son. Patiently, patiently waiting. But let me ask you this question. How much time do you expect God to wait? Think about it. I mean, think about how much time would you wait? I'm not a very patient person. I mean, I am a little bit more patient than I used to be. Kayla's already back in the room shaking her head no. I mean, she had to live with me way too long. I, I get upset sometimes quite easily, and I, I ain't as bad, honestly, as I used to be. But for the most part, you know, listen, when you have children, sometimes you're not very patient, okay? You know what I mean? Like an amen there? Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. So I haven't always exercised patience, but I'm better than I used to be. But I'm not near as good probably as I should be. I'm not even close to God and his patience. So for most of us, it seems that by our nature, we're just not very patient people. So how long would you wait? I mean, God is patiently waiting, but how long do you expect God to wait? A couple of weeks ago, Sheila decided she'd get something to eat at Wendy's. And so she goes into Wendy's. Now, here's the situation. It seems like everybody is short-staffed now, right? We've got some restaurants that can't even open at certain times, and they, they get people in there, and you've got to wait sometimes on a long line. Well, that happened to be with Sheila. Where she went to Wendy's in Princeton to get a sandwich for Micah. Wouldn't even for herself. So she goes to Wendy's to get a sandwich, and she waits 20 minutes in the drive-thru just to place her order. 
I'm thinking, now that's some patience. There's no way I would have ever waited 20 minutes at that stupid little microphone thing, their speaker, waiting to make an order. Now, she did so because Micah wanted the sandwich and because she had patience and because they were short-staffed. She understood that. But I'm not so understanding. I'd have left pretty quickly. I'd have went somewhere else. I wouldn't have went to McDonald's because it's probably going to be worse. So for the most part, we're not just very patient people. We don't like to wait. How long does it take to pop, I mean, to, to make popcorn in a microwave? You know how long it takes? Approximately two or three minutes. I'm impatiently waiting for the popcorn to get done. I'm ready to eat it. We're not just very patient people. But God gives mankind, here's the point, God gives mankind every chance to accept his son, to come to repentance. But eventually, time runs out. And in the text, time has run out, if you will, for the Ninevites. And Jonah gave them his great message, repent or else. They heard, they listened, they responded. They seemed to be having repentful hearts. But that was the prior generation. Now time has elapsed. Yeah, 150 years we noted. Time has elapsed. But here's the thing. Somehow, some way, the following generation that came upon the scene after Jonah left God and turned back to wickedness and to evil. I say it again. Somehow, some way, the following generation, generations, left God and turned to false idols, to evil, to wickedness. I ask you this. Does any of that sound familiar? As we mentioned during the introduction, we live in the greatest country on this planet. There's no country like the great United States of America. But as one generation passes on to another, as the next generation comes upon the scene, the horizon, somehow, some way, we've allowed God to be removed as a priority. I just call it what it is. In our country, We've allowed God to be removed as a priority. The Barna Group conducted a recent study asking Americans their top priority. Their results were representative, if you will, of the current time we're living. The first result was this, that 62%, they asked, what is your priority? 62% immediately stated that they were not merely religious but deeply spiritual. Now, don't that sound good? However, digging deeper into the survey for the polls conducted, it was discovered that deeply spiritual must have a different meaning for these 62% than you or I would expect. I mean, I if someone asks me, if someone tells me they're deeply spiritual, I'm thinking, brother, sister, that means you are making God always first in your life. You're, hey, he's certainly a priority. He's number one. A priority. That's what it seems to me. But when it came to listing their actual priorities, when it came time to identify the priority in their life, they 63% found out that God was not it. 
So then if God is not the priority, then the question really becomes, what is the priority for these Americans? The Barnard Group found the number one priority for people, maybe not surprisingly them, was family. At 51%. Over half the people have been conducted in the poll admitted finally that their priority was their family. Now, I need to tell you this too. That for people in the poll that had children under the age of 18 in their household, that 51% went as high as 74% said the family is the priority. So in some cases, high as 74% said the, pri- the family is the priority. So family is the most important. It's the priority. The family then, as the poll found, was very closely followed, and I say this sarcastically and even a bit humorously, by faith at 16%. What happened to 62% as faith being the most important? When it came down to boil it to the point where we found out truly what was important, family was most important, and I can understand that to some extent, but faith was second and it dropped to 16%? Amazing. Now, while faith was the runner-up, many others admitted that it was not faith as the runner-up. It would have been their health or their lifestyle or their vocational matters like their career or money and success, friendships, And some even admitted that what was runner-up to their family was leisurely pursuits, was their priority. So in sum, in short then, the survey pointed out that while most Americans think of themselves as deeply spiritual, their behaviors do not support such a claim. Rather interesting is a direct question given to the poll group on the matter of their faith. When point blank, they were asked this question. Again, the 62% initially said they were deeply spiritual. But when asked if the single most important purpose of your life is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, if that was the single most important thing in your life, less than 23% said yes. That is my priority. So something seems amiss. Something doesn't seem quite to be in sync here. The conductor of the poll, George Barna, who directed the study, may have put it in perspective when he said this then. He says, spirituality is in vogue in our society today. It is a popular to claim to be part of a faith community or to have spiritual commitment. But what do Americans mean when they claim to be spiritual? He said the recent Grammy Awards were perhaps indicative of this breakdown between self-perception and reality. The members of the group that won the award for the best song thanked God for the victory, then immediately followed with profanities that had to be bleeped from the broadcast. He says it seems as if God is in but living for God is not. 
as we take all that in consideration, we just ask ourselves point blank this question. Where is God in your life? Is he truly a priority? Or do we find ourselves falling into the majority of Americans who make such a claim but fall short and fail to live truly for God and have him be first? And the Barna group, as they concluded their study, may have actually overestimated the results. A follow-up study was done by the Christian Post that found that 90% of Americans identified themselves as a religion. 90%! But only 12% admitted that faith was their top priority in life. The Barna group found it to be 16 to 23%. The Christian Post found later, no, it's as low as maybe 12%. 12% of Americans made faith their priority in their life. So I ask this then. Is just something we accept? Do we just sit idly by and say, okay, that's just the way it's going to be. Country's deteriorating. Things are getting worse. Let's just let it go then. Is that what we do? Just sit by and just let it happen? And we'll talk about that maybe in weeks to come, but maybe a different question to consider is this. About God. I mean, is he just looking down? I mean, sorrowful? But he, is he just looking down and letting it happen? Is he sorrowful for making mankind as he did back in Genesis 6 with the flood? I mean, God it grieved God's heart, as you find written in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. He grieved his heart that he made mankind. So is God just sitting around? Just, am I right? They brought on themselves. I don't regularly listen to Dr. Tony Evans, but I found a message of his last week preparing for this morning that was a bit insightful and I thought maybe useful to today's application. I mean, the message that I seen from him and listened to somewhat was from an empty church back in the height of the pandemic. It was March of 2020, 2020 during March. We were at the same time also having an empty church, as a lot of people were. I mean, we're blessed now this year not to be empty. But during that time over a year ago, a lot of churches were. So he was preaching then, as I was at times, to an empty church. So his message is from March of last year in the spring, but yet still useful for today as we even have this message about how one generation's revival means nothing for the next. So in reference to the pandemic and other world events at that time, he said that God is talking and one of the ways God speaks is through allowing circumstances into our lives and into a world that are not pleasant. He allows those circumstances to get our undivided attention. It's a wake-up call. But he further said this too. That God has not been a priority in American society. We have marginalized him and turned to idols instead. When we forget about God, oftentimes in the Bible, God will shake things. That is, he will allow the normality in our lives to be impacted. We know God is speaking now because our world has been disrupted. Maybe now God is disrupting your life. 
maybe now you are enduring some, some type of hardship and going through some sort of circumstance in your life where he's trying to get your undivided attention. Maybe say, now it's time for you to turn back to God and make him the priority that he truly should be. We go back to the question then to end for today, that where is God in your life? Is he truly a priority? Or is it just as we heard earlier from George Barna, and it's just kind of in vogue to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. Or do you truly put it into practice and make God first? A priority. We've got a lot more to cover before we end our study in time and name, but we have to conclude for today. So today, then, we just kind of look at what we've assessed, what we've heard, and we ask ourselves today, is God truly a priority in our lives? Is he number one or something else in our life a priority? Because today we can make a change and we can make God truly first in our life it's time that we truly commit god commit to him and make him first a priority father we thank you lord for this message perhaps maybe a wake-up call that it is but we're thankful that we can receive it we're thankful we're here today Lord, as we take this message and begin to reflect upon it, I just pray for all of us here at Crossroads and for people who may be even listening today that we would turn ourselves completely to you. And Lord, it's not just us today here or listening as individuals that must turn to you. We pray right now for our country to turn back to you. We see the things happening today, Lord, and we can see circumstances evolving and changing nearly every day. And let us see then that, God, you are trying to get our attention. Things are beginning to happen. Whatever that means, Lord, we know that we need to make you first. So today, we commit ourselves to you. As individuals, as a church, as a country, we turn to you. You're good to us, Lord, even when we don't deserve it. And we're thankful for that. And today we praise you and make you first. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.